How many of you remember this, what happened on this date, very important date in our history, December 7th, 1941? Okay, three of you. Okay, we all need to go back to school, okay? My goodness. Um, who, who remembers what happened on that day? What happened on that day? Pearl Harbor. Okay, so Pearl Harbor happened on that day. It's, it, Franklin D. Roosevelt said a date which would live in infamy. Okay, phew, I was getting worried about our history here. Um, and so we know what happened here. We know that, that Japan surprised the U.S. by sending hundreds of bombers to attack Pearl Harbor. And Pearl Harbor was just really a sitting, a sitting duck there. And what, what it, and, and what was, when it was all said and done, um, there was 20 U.S. ships, 300 airplanes that were destroyed or, or, or crippled. I've got a, I've got a picture of, of this for you. Just a, just a horrific event. Uh, 2,403 military and civilians lost their lives. And as a result of this attack, America officially declared war on Japan. And Pearl Harbor, it's interesting when you look at the, the demographics of Pearl Harbor, it's, it's 2,000 miles from, around 2,000 miles from the mainland of U.S. and 4,000 miles from Japan. And no one thought at the time that Japan would strike the island of Hawaii. That's why we had so many of our ships there. U.S. intelligence officials believe that if Japan did attack, they would first attack a nearby European colonies in the South Pacific. Not expecting an attack so close to home, the naval base at Pearl Harbor was relatively uh, undefended. And this made Pearl Harbor a very, very easy target. The attack was something that was possible, but wasn't actually taken into account. The tragedy that happened in Pearl Harbor 77 years ago remains, uh, reminds me of what can really happen in our spiritual lives. I mean, I, I love watching movies about this, and, but really understanding, I, uh, my thing is I like to say, what, what, what got us to that point to where this happened? That there was mistakes that were made before this that allowed this tragic day to happen. And what I want to do is as we're diving into our series on David, I think sometimes we can look at the stories in the Bible and we can look at the stories of David. And, and when we think about David, we think of two major things. You can take the, the picture down now. When we think of two major stories of David, we think of David and Goliath. And then the other major story we think about is David and Bathsheba. You guys are smart. You guys are, you're, you're on point. And we think about those two stories. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at, at David and, and Bathsheba. And it's a very sad story, but we know what happened that David committed adultery. And then we're going to look at the whole list of things that happened after that. But what I want to look at today is what got David to that point. Because I want you to understand it, that every sin has a beginning. There's something in our lives that happens when we let our guards down. And I believe this thing happened in Pearl Harbor, and it can happen in our lives. And I want you to realize this morning that you have to look at your spiritual life as a battle. If you think that you can put your spiritual life on autopilot or cruise control, you're going to be in a lot of danger and open your life up to a lot of attack in your life. And if we can be proactive in our spiritual lives, and constantly have our, our guard up and be spiritually aware in our lives, I believe 
that we can walk this walk with the Lord, a, a walk of humility before God that, that constantly has our guard up so that we're not, we're not, we're not easily taken advantage of or, or easily caught in these areas of temptation. Because how many know we're always going to be tempted? Temptation is always going to go. Jesus was tempted yet without sin. So temptation is not a sin, but there's something within our heart, the proclivity of our heart, the default of our heart is not going to go to the good thing. The default of our heart. Let's, let's just call it what it is, right? Jeremiah said, your heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? So let's call it. Let's set up the expectation right now. The default of my heart is not to do the best spiritual thing that God desires in my life. Can I get an amen? Okay, so let's call for what it is. The default of my heart is always to go to the lowest variable denomination, right? It's to go to that lowest thing. And so let's call for what it is and let's, let's, let's guard our hearts here. Here's what, here's what Peter says in Peter 5.8. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. So this is what the enemy's doing. He's, he's sneaking around. This, this reminds me that we need to be vigilant and always be aware. And so what Peter is doing here, he's painting a picture, a very vivid picture of literally a lion creeping up on its prey who is unaware that it is right behind them. Now, I, I didn't, I didn't want to get real. I want to show you a real graphic picture of a lion just attacking a zebra or something. So I, I, I didn't do that. I went this way. So let me show you this picture. So just, just there. Okay. So, okay. So I didn't want to get real graphic. So... There you go. Now, <laughs> y'all know I'm not a big cat lover, but for all you cat lovers, I did this for you, okay? Um, I love this picture. So th- that mouse has no idea what's about to happen to him, right? So, so there you go. That, th- this is a good picture of, of the enemy creeping up on us. So, so l- l- let's, let's, get this, let's get this into our, our minds. This is what Peter's saying. We are to be always in our right mind, always in our right mind. And and what is, when Peter says not to be sober minded, what he's saying here is that we should not be intoxicated either with a, a substance or intoxicated with the world or intoxicated with ourselves. This will allow us to, to drop our guard. And this is where we need to be careful. So, so as we're studying the life of David is we're going to dig into the story of David and Bathsheba. This is a big problem. And this is, we're going to look at what got David to this point where he, he committed this grievous sin, broke one of the commandments, and then just domino after that of all these other things that, that David did. And I believe we can learn a lot from this story that can safeguard our hearts and our minds. But also I just want to say too, for those of you that are here, and you know, and you look back over your past, and you say, Pastor, Pastor, I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, David, yeah, I can relate to that. I did some of the same things. I, I want to give you hope today, too, that there is healing, that there is forgiveness that's available through Christ in our lives, that, that, we don't, that, that our lives don't have to be dictated by our past. Our future doesn't have to be dictated by our past. The chains of our past do not have to hold us any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the hope. Hopefully that's why you're here today. I hope that when you come to church, you realize 
that the only hope we have is in Jesus. And that there's hope to understand that there's, that there's forgiveness and healing from my past and the past mistakes that I've made. That's the hope that we have today. And that's what we're going to see in this story also. So, so here we have this, the, the story of David. But here's, here's what's so interesting about the story of David and Bathsheba. The story of David and Bathsheba is, is a sad one for this reason. At this point in David's life, he had much success. Sitting back in the palace, much success, defeating his enemies around him. There's not this, as we've been studying before, this pursuit of Saul and and running for his life and hiding in caves and all these other things. David is seeing success now, and he had everything he needed. This, 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 This wasn't a time where David was struggling and in deep despair And then did something stupid. David actually had everything he needed. And so on the surface, it just doesn't make sense. Have you ever looked at somebody's life that looked like they had so much success? And maybe it was celebrity. Maybe it was an athlete. And you looked at their life and they looked like they had so much success. You're like, man, I wish my life was like that. Looking at it from the surface, you would think everything's great. And then all of a sudden a story comes out. Something happens and their whole life unravels. And you're like, wow, I never knew that was going on behind the scenes. And this is what we see in David's life. He has all this success on the outside. But something happened to David on the inside. And that's what I want to look at. So on the surface, it doesn't make sense. Why did David commit adultery with another man's wife? Why did he have Bathsheba's husband killed? Uh, Why did he try to, to cover it up? I want to look at, at the beginning here. So we're going, to look at the, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to read just these five verses, and then we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. But I, I want to look at this and see what happened here. And hopefully, there are going to be some things that we will extract out of the scriptures here that you haven't seen before. So verse 1 says this, in the spring. Everybody say, in the spring. Okay, that right there makes no sense to anybody right now. Okay, good, it was in the spring. That's going to make all the sense in the world in about 10 minutes. In the spring. Okay, so so we know what time of year it is, and I'm going to give you some context to that. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. So it was the springtime, and you're, you're, you're supposed to be at war. And what does David do? David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained in Jerusalem Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. mistake number one so on the evening David got up from his bed he walked around the roof of the palace from the roof he saw a woman bathing the woman was very beautiful and David said to someone find her and the man said well isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David knew exactly who she was. She knew she was married. Okay, And then he sent messenger to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. And she pured herself, pured herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home, and she conceived and sent word to David that I am pregnant. Uh-oh. Okay, so what do we have here? We have... Bathsheba, she's now pregnant. Her husband is 
off to war and you can now do the math. So what does David do? Well, David, he, 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 does he come clean? No, he gets her husband Uriah from, from the war. And this is how the story goes. He, he, he says, I'm going to concoct this plan where I'll bring Uriah home. Um, I'll have him sleep with his wife. So then it looks like it's her child. You know, back then you didn't have, you know, you know, the DNA checks and the ancestry.com and all this other stuff that you can do all this checking. They didn't have it. So he goes, he's thinking I'll do this and I can cover my, my tracks. And so he brings him back. And then what does Uriah do with the, the, the scriptures tell us that Uriah, Uriah says, no, I'm not going to do that. No, Uriah sleeps actually on the door of the king's house with the servants and didn't go into his own house. This is the kind of man that Uriah was. When, when asked by David, Uriah uh, you know, said, well, how could I do such a thing when I am with the men fighting in the field, which you should be doing? So he doesn't do it. So what does David do? Well, he invites him over and then he gets him drunk. Okay, this is good. Now we've gone here to here to now we're going to get drunk, thinking this will get Uriah to the house to be with his wife. Can you see what's going on here? Can you see the pattern? David gets Uriah drunk. David is the one who's actually intoxicated with deceit, not thinking with a sober mind, not thinking with a right mind. So David's plan didn't work. And so he had him sent back. And what David does next is basically writes Uriah's death sentence. So what David does in the story, David gives Uriah a note to give to Joab, who is a leader in David's army. And he tells Joab to move Uriah to the front of the battle where the fighting is the hardest, which literally meant certain death. Send him to the Russian front. Remember Hogan's Heroes? You know, he's went to the Russian front, right? We're going to send you to the Russian front. That, that literally meant... Um, a death sentence. And so Uriah dies in battle and the word gets back to David of this event. And then David then would marry Bathsheba, making it look like he did this honorable thing, yet all based on lies and deceit. Okay. Now that we're all depressed, aren't you glad you came to church today? Okay. We're all depressed. Now, so what do we do with this story? What do we do with this story? Well, we, 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 we can, we can say, well, don't do that. That's, that's wrong. Some of us can feel self-righteous. How could David do that? I've never done that. Or we can feel shame. Wow, I messed up. I slept around. I had sex outside of marriage. I cheated while I was in, in, in my marriage. But here, here, what I want to look at is two things here today. One, what led David to this point in his life? And secondly, how can we find forgiveness to overcome our shame from the things of our past? Those are the two things we need to take away with from this story. So let's understand how how David actually gets to this place in his life. Remember, sin always has a beginning. So what we understand is David is crowned king. He's in his palace and he's conquering those around him. Now, as you read in the scriptures, the first actual 10 chapters of 2 Samuel is all about David defeating the enemies of Israel that are around him. Now, there was one group that was just a thorn in Israel's side. And they were just nasty. They were just a thorn in Israel's side, and it was the Ammonites. And they lived east of the Jordan. I've got a map here for you just to kind of give you an idea. So there's Ammon. So they lived east of the Jordan. There's the Mediterranean Sea. There's Jerusalem. See where Israel is. And they were just, they were were on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, Now, I want you to realize not... When Israel conquered Canaan, um, some of the tribes of Israel stayed on the east side 
of the Jordan. They didn't all go over, which was a big mistake. They should have all gone over. That was God's plan for the tribes to come into Canaan. But some stayed on the east side and didn't cross the Jordan River. And so the Ammonites were just, they, they were just relentless in, 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 in their pursuit of Israel and constant, constant fighting. In fact, 1 Samuel 10.27 says this. Listen to this. It says, in fact, all the Israelites east of the Jordan, there wasn't a single one whose right eye, Nahash, had not gouged out. Nice king, right? So that, that, that's, that's the king, right? He, he's, he's, he's on the east side of the Jordan. And, and, and you know, do you think that the Israelites are going to have these warm, fuzzy feelings about the Ammonites? How do you think they viewed them? Here's how I think the Israelites viewed the Ammonites. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. They, <laughs> I, that was bad. Okay. Bad. Bad. <laughs> Some of you took a while to get that, but okay. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> that was, I apologize, okay? <laughs> I really do. I, I apologize for that one. Um, so, so what David does is David, now he's the king. There, there's, there's a new king in town. So David, what he's going to do is going to try diplomacy first. He's going he's gonna to say, hey, let me try some diplomacy here. That was in the past. Let me, let me try some d- diplomacy here. So David sent his servants to the new king of the Ammonites. And this is what happened. Samuel 10, 4 says this. And Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beards of each and cut off their garments in the middle at the hip and sent them away. Okay, I'm not going to give you the word. I'm not going to give you the picture there, but you can all get the picture. Uh, basically, this was an act of complete humiliation. I don't care what you have to say. And this is what I think of you. So David, what he does is he goes to war with them. And so what David is doing at this point before he's sitting in his palace, this is before he has the affair with Bathsheba. This is what David is doing. He's fighting on two fronts right now. So this, this is all leading up. This is all leading up to his affair with Bathsheba. So what, what, what does David do? David goes to war with them, but he's fighting on two fronts. He's fighting on this front with the Ammonites, and then he's fighting on this front with the Arameans. And so the Ammonites want to join forces against Israel. So by aligning with the Arameans, uh, they think they're going to defeat David. So what David's men end up doing is defeating the Arameans, and then the Arameans told the Ammonites, listen, you're on your own now. They defeated us. We want nothing to do with it. You're on your own. So what we see here before chapter 11, where we said, where we see in the spring, When men are supposed to go to war, what we see between chapter 10 and 11 is this pause. What is this pause? Well, the pause is winter. So what happens in winter? They take a break. They don't go to war. Because what happens here in winter, uh, the armies go back home to regroup. So it's like, okay, guys, they all say, stop. Put your spears back. Time out, halftime, everybody go home and regroup. So they regroup. Um, there's, you know, there was no MRE rations here, uh, no winter gear, no hand warmers. They said, we're all going to go home. And so they do. And so they begin to pick up the war again in the spring. 
And this is why the beginning of chapter 11 is so interesting. Because look at chapter 11. It says in the first verse here, it says in the spring, this is when the kings do what? They go to battle. David was supposed to be doing what? Fighting. He stopped fighting. He took this time off and he stopped fighting. And so David was supposed to be fighting the Ammonites. And this was a huge war against their nemesis. And so what does David do instead? It said the scriptures tell us that David sends Joab and he remains home. Literally, that word remain home, it literally means to sit. David sat this one out. So how did David go from the point where he gets to adultery and murder? Well, let me show, the, show you the metamorphosis that happened to David. And I believe this can happen to every single one of us if we don't view our spiritual life as a battle. If we don't view our, our, our spiritual lives as I need to be sober-minded in how I'm thinking, not intoxicated with the world, substance, myself, because I can let my guard down, and the enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So what happened? Let me show you the metamorphosis of what David happened. Here, here are David's steps, I believe, towards these grievous sins. The first step is this. It's real easy. Just do nothing. I mean, I, he did nothing. He just sat. So it, you don't have to do anything. Remember, the proclivity of our heart, the default of our heart is to go this way. So do nothing. Second Samuel 11, 11, 2 says, Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And he looked out over the city. He noticed a woman of unusual uh, beauty taking a bath. What's David doing? He's taking a nap. Afternoon, after his midday rest. Everybody else is fighting. David's taking a nap. His normal nap. His midday nap. He gets up. He's bored. Oh, what's going on around the city? I'll walk around. What does this tell us? He took a nap every day. He was bored. Is he watching Netflix? I don't know. Is he binging on a Netflix now? I don't know. But David was, was looking to do something. He wasn't, he wasn't looking to do something wrong or do something evil. It's the fact that he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so David was neglecting his duty and he lost his vision. He lost his passion which let his guard down. So just do nothing. The second step, I think, is, is David lingered too long. See, once your heart is down, once you do nothing, what's going to happen? Once you're bored, you're going to linger too long. So David sees Bathsheba. I doubt she's an exhibitionist. She was purifying herself. And so when you get bored, you begin to look and linger at things that you shouldn't. Instead of looking away, David allowed himself to linger too long. The sin wasn't that he saw Bathsheba. The sin was he stayed too long. That was the sin. Because he could have looked away and said, this is wrong. I need to look away. 
this, this, is, this is against the Lord. I shouldn't be doing this. But he lingered too long. And then step three is, well, now he gives into the sin. David knew she was married. David knew this was a sin. Yet the lust of his heart took over and he committed adultery. Now, I want you to notice that this just wasn't a physical thing. Because we can excuse it as that. And well, it's just a physical thing. What's the big deal? But I want you to see that, that this was a heart thing. This is more than just a, a physical thing. It was actual spiritual adultery because ultimately the sin was against God. He, he broke the command of God. He knew, he knew what was required of him. But yet because he did nothing, he lingered too long, he allowed himself to go where he shouldn't have gone and ultimately his sin was against God. This is what, can, can we just talk a minute, just you and I for just a second here? Just to always remember this. That we can cover our sin. That we can hide it for a while. But I want you to realize in a relationship with Jesus Christ, ultimately that sin is against God. And what it's doing, it's, it's, it's breaking away at the covenant that God made with us to never leave us or forsake us. We, we break that covenant with God. And why did God use this illustration or this word about Israel always committing adultery against him when they would go and chase after foreign gods. Why? Because he was married to them. God says, I am committed to you. I just did a marriage yesterday and, and the two couples shared their vows together. The vows were a covenant to never leave each other or forsake each other for rich or poor, for better or for worse. It wasn't a contract. It wasn't like, I'll do this if you do that. If you mow the lawn, I'll do the laundry. And then I had him sign a little thing in front of everybody, right? Do check mark. Is that good? Are you guys good with that? Is that a good contract? Okay, everybody's set with that. If I did that, everybody would pick up their toaster and run out the back of the service, right? No one, no one would stay. Why? Because no one wants to hear that. That's not love. That's not commitment. That's not a covenant. This is the covenant that God speaks with. So I want you to realize that in our lives, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, he forms a covenant with us that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And what breaks that bond with Christ in our life is when we are wayward with our hearts. And we wander away from that covenant that God says, I'm here for you. I want to forgive you. I don't want you to go in those places because I know what it's going to do to our relationship. So it's spiritual adultery and ultimately it's a sin against God. Always remember that. And then with that comes the fallout, which we know. Step four is keep it a secret. And this is what David did. He covered it up. He makes himself look good by marrying her. And, and secret sin will always harm us in the end. It, it takes a toll on a relationship with God and others. So here we see the pattern. And then it just blows up. And, but, but here's the thing I want you to realize. Even with this grievous sin against the Lord and with another man's wife and all the things that happen, Paul, looking back in the book of Acts, says, David was a man after God's own heart. How could David be called that after what he just did? Can I just say one word? Grace. That's all I can say. God showed him his sin. And every time that David was confronted with his waywardness. There's not a time in the scripture that we do not see that David did not confess that sin and confess that to the Lord. There's the good news. There's the good news and there's the hope that we have. 
And so how do we protect ourselves and find healing from our past? How can David work through this? It's only through the grace of God. And so there are, there are these steps to our prison, which David took these steps to go into prison of sin. And then there are these steps to our freedom. And this is how I want to end today. I want to talk about what are your steps to your freedom, freedom from your past, freedom from something that you're battling with today. What are the steps to our freedom that we can live in this relationship with God that we're not um, handcuffed to our past and our sin and our guilt and our shame? That's the good news about the gospel. Amen. And this is what Jesus came to do. He came to set us free. He came to set us free. So, so what are the steps here? Let me just give you a couple things here. First of all, be receptive to God's word. God's word will speak to your heart. For David, it came through the prophet Nathan who confronted him and his sin. So God brought the prophet Nathan to speak to David's heart about what David did. And so David heard the word of the prophet and what does David do next? Well, he confessed his sins. So there's the, there's the be receptive to God's word. When you feel the conviction of reading God's word and you're like, okay, God, what do I do now? Then there's the confession of our, our sin. Look at second Samuel 12, 13. It said, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against who? The Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, there's going to be consequences to his action because that child would eventually die. There were some consequences there. But Nathan said, you're not going to die. The Lord has put away your sin. And let me just say this confession of sin to someone else, another mature believer in the Lord, helps us to take it seriously. When we don't share it, what we're really saying is, I don't really want to give it up. I don't want to give it up. But when we're able to to be in the confines of a good relationship, a healthy relationship with another brother or sister in the Lord, and we say, you know what? I just got to confess this thing. And there have been times for me personally in a Bible study with other men that they've confessed up within the context of the group of men have been our best Bible studies ever. It's just amazing that we're able to gather around each other, not judge each other, but to pray for each other that they can come out of that dark cave and not live in that darkness any longer. And you can walk in the light and the freedom and to see the release and the freedom and the healing that comes from other men getting around them and praying for them is an amazing thing. God does not want you living in a dark cave. It's listen, if church is about shame and guilt and condemnation, we're missing the gospel. I say this all the time. If I were to show all the things you thought about or did last week on the screens and me too, none of us would show up to church, right? Because we're not proud of some of the things. But listen, when we get those things out, we say, Lord, these are wrong. This pattern is wrong. My thinking is wrong. I need to confess this before you. We come out of darkness and we come into the light. This helps us on the road to true repentance, forgiveness, and freedom. And then step three here is receiving God's grace. This is what I love about David. I want you to listen to David's heart because Psalm 51 is David's repentance before God from this act that he committed with Bathsheba. I love Psalm 51.1. It says, he says this to the Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Later on in verse 17, he says, The sacrifices uh, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So what David is saying there, when we come to the Lord and we humble ourselves and we say, you know what? I messed up and I own it. What does he say? God will not despise you. In fact, God will receive you and forgive you and heal you from those transgressions. So how did God forgive David? How can God forgive us? Well, God could forgive David because God would give his son for us. David's sins and our sins would be dealt with on the cross that Jesus died on. Jesus would become our substitute and through his perfect life paid the penalty for David's sin and for our sin. That's how his sins can be forgiven. It's only through Jesus Christ. This is our hope. I absolutely love 1 John chapter 1, 7 through 9. I, 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 I love this. Let's, let's just look at this together. Here's what John says. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have what? We have fellowship with one another. True godly fellowship is not talking about the weather. It's not talking about how bad the Mets are doing this year, okay? It's not about that. Let's pray for the Mets, Lord. 15-game winning streak right now. Um, It's not about that. True fellowship and walking in the light is we're able to share and encourage each other in the Lord. Be able to confess to one another and really get to the deep things. Is it wrong talking about the weather and sports? No, none of that stuff is wrong, but that's not fellowship. That's not true koinonia, the meaning of the Greek word there. True fellowship is when we walk together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We share our struggles together. We share our faults together. We share our victories together. We encourage each other. That's true fellowship. I'll tell you what, that's the thing that does it for me. Because when I first became a Christian, there was something about our youth group that I experienced true fellowship with other people who love Jesus. And that helped me so much in my walk with the Lord. It was something different than I wasn't, that I wasn't getting being on the swim team or on the tennis team or all those things were great. But there was something different when I was in the body of Christ with other young people that believed and loved Jesus did something for me that I never, ever experienced before. And it was true fellowship. Church is important, people. It's so important that you get plugged in to other Christians in small groups. Don't be an island because this world, it will just beat you up. You need encouragement from one another. Okay, I could say more, but I'll stop. Okay, not my notes. So here's what it says. So he says, we have true fellowship with one another. And it says, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from some of our sins. What does it say? Oh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God wants us to, does he already know it? Okay, he already knows it, but he wants us to confess it because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess it, that's when we receive that forgiveness and blessing that God wants to bestow upon us. But if we hide it, we miss it. We miss the blessing 
and the healing that God wants to give to us. So here's the last thing we're going to land the ship. Okay, here's the last thing. Or land the plane, park the ship, whatever. Here's the last thing. God will restore us. God will restore you. It's interesting, at the end of chapter 12, um, it tells us that David ends up going to fight against the Ammonites. He does what he's supposed to do. David begins to act like a king again. Here's the thing I want to leave you with. Never stop fighting. Guard your heart. Fight for your marriage. Pray for your children. Be consistent in your walk with God. See, at the heart of my life is I can prepare messages, but my messages may not prepare me. I have to be in God's word every day to prepare my heart before God so that I can deliver what God has placed on my heart for this church. And that's why I ask you to pray for me. God's word, if you hide it in your heart, the word of God says, will keep you from waywardness. God's word is like a spring of life within your soul. That when the drought times come and the hardness of life comes, you've got a reservoir that never runs dry. It will be an anchor for your life, for your marriage. We need God's word. And I think sometimes there's a famine within our hearts because there's this lack of hunger for God's word. And I would just tell you, listen, pray for God to give you a hunger for his word. Now, you're going to read God's word sometimes. I mean, I've been reading through the whole Testament, and I've been going through Ezekiel, and sometimes you're reading through stuff, and you're like, oh, my, can, can we just get done with the temple and the dimensions for Christ? I mean, my gosh, this chapter, oh, okay. You know, and you're like, what does this have to do with, you know. But let me just say this. God's word is, he is, he's a lamp unto your, your feet and a light unto your path. And I would just encourage you to get into God's word. Start any way that you can. Maybe it's a verse a day. Maybe it's a chapter a day. And then you begin to grow through that and then challenge yourself. You know what? I'm going to read through the whole Bible. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to, this year, I'm just going to, it may take me two years, but I'm going to read through the whole Bible. I'm just going to do it. Start to, start to back. I'm just going to, and I'm, you may not understand things, but that's okay. When I first became a Christian, I didn't understand half the stuff in there, but I just kept reading, asking questions, studying. I didn't have Google back then. You got Google, right? Come on. You got gotquestions.org. They've answered like 300,000 Bible questions. Come on, you got no excuse. You can have a concordance right on your phone now. You don't have that big strong concordance lugging that thing around, right? So we have no excuse. So let's never stop fighting. So my, the takeaway today is I pray with you and just let you off into this beautiful non-rainy day is this. Which direction are you headed, if you were to ask your, yourself? Are you headed into prison that you know because you know your heart's not directed towards Christ? Or are you headed towards freedom? 
What path are you taking? God has given you everything possible through his son, Jesus, to be the follower that he desires you to be. The problem is we have to take up what we need to take up and begin to follow Christ and to do those things and to take those steps to allow ourselves to keep growing in Christ. So I'm going to pray for freedom for you today. For those of you that are here today and you're just battling with your past and some shame, I'm going to pray for Christ just to set you free as you give those things to him. And then realize, I love that song, I am a child of God. Realize that you're a child of God. Your past doesn't dictate your future. And God has wonderful things for us that are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean my life's going to be perfect. But there's so many blessings that come with knowing him that are beyond anything physical or material that he desires to give you. The riches of God are amazing. Nothing in this world can compare. Amen. So let me pray for you. Would you bow your hearts with me as I just uh, finish in prayer today? How many would you just say, Pastor Barn, just pray, pray for me today. That's me. I'm struggling with some things in my past and I just need Christ's freedom in my life. Amen. I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty and your boldness. Lord Jesus, if we just bow our hearts before you and for those that are just saying, Lord, it's me, just by the raised hand, it's me, God, it's me. I, I need your freedom and your healing from my past and my shame. I need Jesus' covering in my life and I thank you that there's hope. There, if there's hope for David, there's hope for me because of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that. So I just pray, God, that you would, um, in our hearts as a, as a church, would just give us a new hunger for your word. That, God, we would have a passion to read it, to know it, but most of all, to apply it. That, God, it would be so much more than just information, but it would be transformation in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone that feels alone today, that feels like they're in an island or in a dark cave. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them into the light. That Jesus, as a body, as a church, Lord, we want to be people that help others come out of the dark cave. We don't want to push people back in deeper and deeper, but we want them to come out. So help us to show the grace and mercy to others as you have shown unto us. Let your grace and your mercy that has flowed into our hearts and our lives, may we be a conduit that goes through us, that flows out to others that need grace and mercy and need to be rescued from their sin. So thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us today. And we just ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's just thank the Lord today. God is good, isn't he? His word is so good. Amen.